0: Thanks for pressing play. Trust is a cornerstone of society. And frankly, it's the seminal component that's required for everything to work, including everything in business. Without trust, very few things would actually get done. Our guest today says that trust at every level of business and society has never mattered as much as it does right now. CEOs, executives, presidents and prime ministers of countries, governors, and frankly leaders at every level in every institution are facing vexing issues and trade-offs today. To build trust in our here today, gone later today world is a seminal capability. And uh, if we wanna get anything done, it requires a high degree of trust. After a 20-year successful career in business, including at Filene's Basement and Fidelity, our guest today, Professor Sandra Sucher, dedicated herself to teaching, and she became a professor of management practice at the Harvard Business School. She's written a wonderful and, frankly, powerful new book, aptly titled The Power of Trust, How Companies Earn It, Lose It, and Regain It. And on this episode, we get into it and we go deep in ways you might find very surprising. Welcome to Christopher Lockhead, follow are different and we are not for most people. You see, most people prefer highly edited interviews that are sliced and diced and spoon fed to them. Uh, we are the opposite of that. You might say we are the antidote to the traditional interview. We're what's called a real dialogue podcast for business leaders with a different mind. My friends at NetSuite are the leaders in the cloud business system world, and they are number one in cloud ERP. Check out netsuite.com/different for a free product tour today. The power and importance of data has never been uh, higher than it is right now. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com/d2e to today. And uh, our newsletter, Category Pirates, is sort of like the Harvard Business Review. But for Pirates, visit Lockhead.com today and subscribe to Category Pirates. And my friends at Malibu Milk are the leaders in organic flax milk. And uh, Malibu Milk might be the simplest, tastiest, uh, best thing you can do for you. Check out Malibu MalibuMilkWithAY.com today. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So, Professor, it's great to meet you.
1: Oh, and uh, it's a pleasure to meet you, Christopher. It really is. Yeah, so I read uh, some of the stuff that people say about you, uh, and I was delighted and concerned that the economist said uh, that you are off-putting to some. So, okay, <laughs> so as we got started, I wanted to ask, were you off-putting like to the people that you interview or chat with? Uh, who, who are you off-putting to? And, and what did you think about them saying that?
0: Well, I thank them for it because I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that comment, so I'm deeply indebted to The Economist um, for saying that. I I don't try to be off-putting, but it turns out, you know, some people, I swear, I just, I'm a natural cusser, so I I do that, and um, I'm opinionated, and listen when people say stupid things and i'll call bullshit on it i think you know i mean you're a management professor i think much of what we taught get taught about management leadership marketing entrepreneurship personal growth uh, i think the vast majority of it is complete bullshit and i'm not shy about
1: that <laughs> yeah uh, well then this is going to be great right <laughs> all right okay uh...
0: so trust what is it you want most people to know about this hugely important topic?
1: The most important thing I, I think to know about trust uh, is that it's a relationship, right? Uh, it's a relationship uh, of, what can I say, a vulnerability uh, where the party that you're trusting, uh, you're trusting on their actions, right? That they will do right by you and they're trusting on their motives, So there's a whole moral domain of trust that makes it more than just like reliability. Yes. And so, but the the value of thinking about trust as a relationship is we work on relationships all the time. This is not like terra incognito to any of us. Uh, And it says that trust is something you can get your arms around. It's not ether. It's not magic. It's not fairy dust. It's a result of, you know, how people understand what you've done, what you think about and how much you care about them and how you show that in your actions.
0: Hmm. And is that the sort of where we begin to think about how we become a a trustworthy person? And of course, if I'm an entrepreneur, if I'm a CEO or senior executive, I want to build a culture of trust inside my company. And of course, as a marketer, I understand the most powerful thing I can have is trust with our customers and people in our category.
1: Yeah, So that is definitely true. One of the things that we found in the research is uh, to your point about culture, that trust is built from the inside out. So most of us think of trust as kind of reputation management, you know, and I'm trying to actually get some control over how people think about me and my company and what we do. Uh, And what we found in looking at companies that establish trust is that the only way they do that is because the people inside the company trust the management Trust what the company's up to. Uh, and that's how they can establish trusting relationships. So if you don't have trust inside the company, kiss it goodbye. It, it's you're just not going to get
0: it outside the company.
1: Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so, you know, a lot of your research, uh, which I find incredibly fascinating, the Deloitte Edelman stuff that you're involved with. I mean, it's shocking that it seems to be, um, you know, we're at a very low point in trust in corporations and trust in government and trust in institutions overall. Can you kind of pop the hood on some of that research?
1: What I've found uh, that leads to this conclusion that you see in the Edelman research and what Deloitte is up to uh, is that is a trust is what can I say it's it's a judgment that people make uh, and they make it based on their understanding of how competent you are uh, and then they worry about sort of what motives. Do you have? And the way that you work with that is really really—it's sort of whose interests are you serving? And we show more of that through our actions than we think in the choices that we make. Uh, They care about do you treat people and institutional players fairly? right? So the means that you use to accomplish your goals matter. Uh, And the last thing that really matters, and this, I I think, makes our research somewhat different, my research somewhat different from the other things that I read about, is just the importance of impact. And what I mean by that is the real, on the ground, I can see it, you can't lie about it, uh, impact the company actions have. Uh, And people, you know, talk very importantly, Importantly about purpose. Uh, But I think that in addition to that, we all see what we see. Uh, And so the impact of company actions, of government actions, that's part of a huge part of what we're judging them on. So it's not like we just believe what people tell us. We actually are judging on very real things, which goes back to the point I was making before about trust being a relationship. And so you go back to this question, well, how has my behavior impacted that person? Right. What What's happened to them as a result of what I've done? Have they gotten sick because I haven't protected them against COVID? Uh, you know, have they been in an airplane that tragically, tra- you know, crashed? You know, those are the kinds of things. Or, you know, is this a relationship where I love the fact that they take care of me? Right, and and so that impacts very positive. So, but so it's those four things. You know, it's are you competent? Uh, do you actually show by your motives that you take other people's interests in as well as your own? Because uh, we're talking about business, and you know, of course, these aren't charities; they shouldn't be. But we care that they take uh, other people's interests into account. Uh, we care about whether or not businesses are fair. In the means that they use to accomplish their goals. And we care a lot about what impact they actually have. And most important within that is whether they take accountability uh, for unintended impacts. So, you, you know, if you follow the purpose thread, it's like, I intend to do this. Here's what I've done. Here's how well I've done. Uh, where the rubber meets the road with trust is when something that you didn't intend has occurred. And then we sort of wonder what's up with that.
0: Yes. And so this is a topic I care uh, deeply about. So let's pick a couple of examples. uh, Some of my favorite corporate criminals, Volkswagen, Hmm. Wells Fargo, Boeing. Let's just take those. Yeah. So, you know, Wells Fargo is a bank that's been caught doing uh, illegal things to its customers that's been that's been found guilty of systemic racism. Uh, Volkswagen Group, which of course includes Audi and Porsche, caught purposely writing software to fool regulators around their adm- admissions, and it went on for years and years and years. And of course, the CEO of Boeing going to visit the president of the United States, telling him not to ground the Max, right when they knew the Max was killing people, and personally. I didn't see the big sort of to do when they, when Boeing said the Max was safe where the entire executive team and board of Boeing with their families children and grandchildren got on these Maxes. Right. So I don't want to get on a Boeing Max. Right. I used to own a VW. I'll never own one again. And I used to do business with Wells Fargo. I think they're criminals and should go to jail. And yet Um, Not everybody seems to think the way I do about these companies that are really corporate criminals.
1: One of the dismaying things about studying trust uh, is that it's very much in the eye of the beholder. So we trust on very different dimensions. So someone who cares about the environment is outraged that VW had emissions that were 40 times the level that they claimed that they were, you know, someone who cares about how customers are treated are outraged by what Wells Fargo did in opening accounts and customers' names in order to make revenue happen and then profit. Uh, and Boeing, you know, is the poster child for essentially lying about the safety of its planes. uh, And it's a long discussion about that. So there's a reason why all of those things matter to you. There are people who say, well, but people are still buying VW cars. So there's got to be something okay there, even though they did this thing wrong, right? And the Boeing still has yet to, I think, earn the trust of the public. Wells Fargo has not gone out of business. And the truth about trust from a corporate standpoint is that it has to be of the scale of something like Enron to drive a company out of business.
0: So if you take Boeing, you know, they killed... Uh, if i'm not mistaken 600 or so people with two plane crashes is that is that correct professor so it was
1: 346 uh people uh including in total back. in both crashes in both crashes yeah including crew uh and uh but look one person is the wrong number <laughs> So, you know, we can argue, you know, if it, would we trust them less if it were 600 than if it's 300? That's not the calculus.
0: The worst thing I want to have happen on to me on a plane is they spill Jack Daniels on my lap.
1: Exactly. Or for some reason, the Wi-Fi is not working and I can't watch my exactly. choice. I want this to be a low impact event. And, uh, and I think that that's true. But I, I think that people use this argument that because a company doesn't go out of business, Business when it's had a trust breach, that there's no cost to that. And that actually is not true. Uh, so if you did a running uh, commentary, which I still want to do with this analysis, I haven't done it yet, of all of the costs that have been associated with the Boeing crashes. You know, from the year of lost sales, probably now almost two years of lost sales, uh, to being, you know, fined by the government and having to settle in the billions of dollars uh, for misrepresentation to now a shareholder suit that basically claims that the Boeing board was asleep at the switch Uh, And either was, uh, you know, colluding uh, with the management or was not living up to his fiduciary responsibilities uh, in monitoring the safety of the airplane that was at the core of the business that they run.
0: Well, and how is it the CEO of Boeing isn't in jail? How is it that nobody, uh, 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 nobody senior, I know a few people have gone to jail at VW, but the last time I looked, nobody senior at VW has gone to jail. How is it possible that Wells Fargo can not only rip customers off, but plead guilty and pay out in systemic racism uh, cases where they have been proven to be fucking over black people in profound ways and nobody goes to jail? This stuff angers me to the core, and I, I don't understand it.
1: So the reason they don't go to jail uh, is that someone has to bring a lawsuit. But, right? you know, people don't go to jail just because they've done something wrong. They either need to go through the criminal courts, which means that the state comes after them.
0: Which is my point. How come the state doesn't come after them? The state will put a black person in jail for having a quarter ounce of marijuana. But they won't put the Boeing CEO in jail for killing over 300 people knowingly.
1: Right. So I am not disagreeing with you. I'm simply trying (laughs) to explain. I wasn't
0: insinuating any of this was your fault, (laughs) Professor.
1: (laughs) Thank you. You know, I feel better already. Uh,
0: (laughs) Quite the contrary. I just want to know how the hell it happens.
1: Right. Yeah. No. So I was involved for years uh, at Harvard Business School in a course called Leadership and Corporate Accountability. Uh, And that course uh, has a premise, which is that uh, corporations have three sets of responsibilities. So one of them uh, is economic, uh, the second is legal, and the third is ethical, right? And so when you think about how it is that a corporation stays in business sustainably over time, it's when they're good at all three of those things. But part of what it meant to teach the course is I had to learn some things about the law, uh And it did astonish me as it does you, that if no one is willing to bring a case, and then if there's not a case that can be adjudicated and found that the person is guilty, that the person's not going to go to jail, and it strikes me as terribly unfair, but that is the process, and there are good reasons why we have a process like that as abused as it can be so so that 's why people aren't going to jail, uh, but it does mean that they can be sued civilly you know, meaning that we're going to try to claw back money from them. uh, And that's part of what can be done. Uh, But I think that if you try to go back to trust, the reason why you're asking this question is really around motives again. Did they know what they were doing? Uh, Did they take responsibility for it? It was weeks, months after the first crash, that Millenberg, the CEO, finally came out and said something about being sorry. And it was one of the worst corporate apologies I've ever seen uh, in light of how horrific the actions were that he had uh, basically been the leader of. Uh, So so I, I think that when you think about trust, it is this domain of sort of competence and then these moral factors that we take into account that offend our sensibility because we don't trust the motives of the people. We don't trust how they go after doing their business. And we certainly don't like the impacts that they have, and they don't seem to take responsibility for them.
0: Yes, it's disgusting. And when you juxtapose it against how other companies behave, it starts to get really interesting. We recently wrote a a newsletter about Southwest Mm. and I would trust Southwest to tell me the Boeing max is safe. Yep. I don't trust the FAA because we now know Boeing had them in, in their pocket. Disgusting. I don't trust Boeing at all. And I used to, and you're talking to a guy who traveled 6 million miles on a plane in my life. I've been on a, on their product a lot, but I don't trust any of those people. If Southwest tells me it's safe to get on one, I would get on one. Right. And so why is it, um, why is it that, you know, I and many of us feel that way. We don't trust the government, we don't trust the manufacturer, but in this case, we trust the, uh, one airline. Oh, by the way, and if American Airlines told me it was safe, I would run.
1: <laughs> so, so Southwest was one of the most wonderful purpose stories in the history of mankind. You know, when Southwest was founded, uh, it was there and purposely ran a business, created a business to be cheaper, more efficient, and to have fun at the same time. And it was an amazing thing that they pulled off. And so they earned the trust that we have with them because of the history of how they've been. So trust has this long tail uh, and you just, you build trust over time and what you see is the result of trust, being trusted is exactly what you say, which is that you will believe what they say. That's one of the times when trust really matters, uh, which is, as you're a corporation, when do I need people to really believe what I say? And how are they going to judge the actions that got me to this point? And will that affect how they feel?
0: Yes. Yeah, so you mentioned earlier, Professor, about sort of how they, I forget exactly how you put it, but how they react or respond to situations. And I'm reminded of two. Um, one with Southwest a few years ago. You may recall there was a gal who got on one of their planes, and I guess she was somewhat provocatively dressed. And and one of the um, the crew asked her to leave the plane because of this. You remember this story, yes?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And of course, you know what Southwest did shortly thereafter, right? Uh,
1: Okay. I am embarrassed to say I do not
0: recall. Oh, it's okay. Well, I'll tell you. So this gal made a big noise about it, and the company immediately came out and apologized. They did something to make her financially whole, and they immediately <laughs> launched their... I, I think that the... the they the the gal who was upset about what she was wearing said it was skimpy. So they launched a campaign on on a skimpy sale. So they kind of made fun of themselves, and they launched a sale where they made fun of themselves, um, right? And of course, they got all this PR with the gal about the sale, and you know it was all sunshine and light and silliness.
1: Yeah. So, but what you just described, so there is a whole literature on apologies. So it turns out that there are better and worse ways to apologize. And what Southwest did uh, is a classic. So the first thing you have to do is you just have to acknowledge that you did wrong. You have to indicate that you're sorry for it, but you're acknowledging. It's not like I beg your forgiveness. It's that I am sorry that I did this thing wrong, like called your dress skimpy. Uh, The next thing, you do have to make some kind of an offer of repair. Right? So it's very important when you're apologizing to say, how will I make this person whole? Because if I did something wrong, it's up to me to kind of do something about that. Sometimes I can do it to the person. Sometimes it's a systemic change that I need to introduce. Uh, and, and, so, and then the third thing is what actions you take uh, in light of what it is that you're apologizing for. So this was a brilliant move on their part uh, to kind of let people understand that they cared, and then let people benefit from the mistake that they made by running a sale, right? I mean, so there's a genius to that, uh, which is, okay, we made a mistake and we actually feel so badly about it. We're going to give cut everyone a deal, skimpy all around. Uh, So so one of the things that was so interesting when you study a topic, uh, and if you're a researcher is, oh my God, people have studied apologies, I mean who knew you know and there are like six factors and I just gave you the top Thank 3 Thank God for
0: management professors professors <laughs>
1: I don't know about that, but uh, but it was it's definitely something that I've used in my own life, you know, when I'm trying to apologize to my son for some crime against him. You know, I, I'm trying to think, okay, what do I say? How do I make him whole? You know, what do I do, commit to doing going forward, all that sort of stuff. So
0: now, let me ask you about this technique that I use, because I'm somebody that gets criticized on a fairly regular basis. And <laughs> sometimes I can't help myself. I, I push back and tell them to go after themselves. But I, I try more often than not now. Uh, to have fun with it. And Mm. so uh, I'll often say things like, if you're gonna, you know, criticize me and call me names, at least get it right. And then I'll tell them, you know, what they should be criticizing me about as, as, you know, this is really not an area to hit me where you want to hit me is over here. Most people think I'm a this, you know? And so I kind of, I diffuse it with some uh, humor that is self-deprecating. Like if people want to call me stupid and uneducated, then I just remind them that they're incredibly right because I got thrown out of school at 18 for being stupid. So, you know, that's not really a criticism. It's a statement of fact. Right. <laughs> anyway, my point is maybe in the hierarchy of ways that we can handle criticism, maybe walk me through sort of where the humor of what Southwest does and, and, and what I try to do. And what are the things that individuals and companies can do when they get hit like this?
1: What you did in using humor uh, works as long as the other person thinks it's humorous. So the most important thing about an apology is that it has to land, right? And it has to land with the other person. Uh, And so I think that this, so part of when you study trust, it's always thinking about how does this other person see this thing? right? It's all about building a relationship and thinking about from the other person's perspective. So my guess is, having talked with you now some before this and now, uh, that you're a funny guy. You're also being vulnerable when you say that. So if you tell people that you were kicked out of school when you're 18, you know, there's a, a lot that people know about the fact that just knowing something like that about you, you've revealed a part of yourself that now actually allows them to have a different kind of relationship with you, Because now it's Chris, the guy who got, you know, bounced out and left and all that at 18. So, so, you know, that, that has as much to do with interpersonal engagement uh, and the fact that we trust people who we think are being authentic and being authentic involves actually saying things about ourselves that make people feel like they understand us more than sort of the official presence that we have.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I I always like to have fun with it. Um this guy uh, criticized me in a in a not so kind way on LinkedIn recently for misspelling something. And so I said to him, "Hey, thanks so much. As a dyslexic, I need as much help with spelling as I could get." Oh. And and you could just it was you could just feel through 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 the zeros and ones how I had punched him in the chest. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, so I was uh, a um, in charge of uh, training and quality uh, at Fidelity when I was an executive. So I was an executive for 20 years before I came to HBS. And I remember uh, asking this question. Uh, so one of my, the director reported to me in the Dallas facility said, you know, the people here really admire you. And I said, well, what is it that they admire about me? Is it my sparkling wit? Is it my your lovely scarves? You know, is it, uh, is it the way that I see the business? And he said, no, it's your shoes. They actually really think you wear great shoes. So I've learned ever since then to never fully sort of understand exactly how other people see me. Because if I were to rank order the things that I think are good about me, the shoes would be like on my feet. You know, they'd be pretty far down. Uh, And and so, but I, I think that I learned a lot at that time about how differently other people see us. And that's yes. actually you know, been something that I've thought about as an executive, as a professor, as a teacher, uh, that that notion that other people see the world differently from how we see it uh, is kind of at the core of this way of thinking about trust uh, and really coming back to other people's perspective.
0: And so if I was a CEO or a senior executive, an entrepreneur, and I said, hey, Sandra, I, I really want to have a breakthrough in our culture around trust. I think it's one of the kind of core tenants of our company and I want to make sure it lands internally and then of course externally where would you suggest I start
1: i would suggest that you start finding a different way to manage layoffs so if i were to rank order the actions that are routinely taken by corporations that do harm to them as well as to the people who are affected. Uh, I think that the way that we handle workforce change is outrageous, and I can tell you that it contributes to a culture of mistrust and lack of engagement. Uh, so I have a great story about a company I studied, it was Nokia, as they were going down, <laughs> as they were being outcompeted competed by Apple. Uh, and they knew they were going to have to take a layoff that was going to affect, it ended up affecting 18,000 people in their organization. And this was across 13 countries. And they had to figure out, well, how are we going to do this? Because they'd had a disastrous layoff that they did in Germany uh, just a couple of years before. And so they knew how much harm could come from that. And so they came up with a plan where they gave all the people affected five different paths to getting a next job. One path is they could get another job at at Nokia. Another is they would help them get a job outside Nokia. A third is that they would help fund a business that they wanted to start. A fourth is that they could pay for education. And the fifth was, if you can think of something that's not in those four go for it. We want to hear what it is. Uh, They told people about that up to two years in advance of when they were going to be doing these layoffs. And they had to go to the board. They decided to go to the board to say, we're going to take a big bet on trust here, that if we do right by our employees, they will do right by us. So the end of the story uh, is that 60% of 18,000 people knew their next step the day they left the firm. They actually had the same percent of sales devoted to new products, which is about a third of their revenue, as they always did. They had uh, an effect in terms of quality where they were doing better in many factories than they had done before. Engagement, which they measured, stayed high. Uh, And the whole thing cost about 3.4% of restructuring charges. Uh, So it was like around 50 million euros, which is nothing.
0: So the cost to buy the trust, if you want to get that analytical about it, is infinitesimal.
1: Right. And and so I think it's always important when you talk about trust, and it's part of why in our book, The Power of Trust, we tell a lot of these stories because we're so outraged, all of us, at the things that we know that go wrong, that we forget that it's possible for companies to be remarkably innovative uh, and earn trust in ways that surprise us. Uh, And so that's a lot of why we did the research and why it's taken me almost 20 years to kind of get this bank of stories that we could rely on and tell in the book so that people understand, oh my gosh, I never thought you could do a layoff like that, right? That's pretty cool. And so if you ask, what's my advice to CEOs? I can tell them from a research standpoint uh, is that there is no greater trust killer inside the organization than the disengagement that comes with people who are surviving a layoff, so the harm isn't just to the people who are laid off. It's how lousy other people feel. And anyone who's ever been in a company that's had a layoff understands this. And the amazing thing is that we just don't do it differently knowing that.
0: So if we are facing that horrible decision, and I have faced that decision, yeah. uh, I think most executives, it, it's hard to believe you could be an executive of, of a meaningful uh, outfit without having to deal with this at least a, a couple of times in your career. Is the question I have to ask, you know, how do we make this, I know this is a crazy question, but how do we make this a legendary layoff for everybody?
1: I think that's the goal. If we want to be trusted, so I'd reframe that. I'd say, how can we be trusted at the end of this? By the people that we laid off, by the people who still work in the firm, and by anyone who can read a newspaper and who follows us and cares about the actions that we have. And I I think that if you start with that as your goal, because that was more or less where the Nokia senior leaders were. It's like, we so don't want to go through what we did before. We need to do this differently. And they knew that they were banking on trust. So I think that, you know, I it's it, so uh, it, CEO, I admire greatly, Dave Cote, when he was the head of Honeywell, you know, he always had to do layoffs, but he made sure that he only did them for strategic changes where he was exiting a business. And he was famous, is famous, we tell the story in our book, for using furloughs rather than layoffs during the Great Recession. And why did he do that? He'd seen the effects of layoffs in his 20 years when he was a GE, and he knew what a killer that they were. And he wanted to run a good intact company at the end of the recession. And so he was very consciously weighing customers first, we're going to do everything to make sure their needs are met. And then he said, I was going to balance the interests of my investors and my employees. So the investors would just assume that I take a layoff, get it done quickly. Let's take, you know, let's try to adjust cost in relation to revenue. But he wasn't going to do that. And he said, because he knew that in the long run, investors would benefit by having an engaged workforce.
0: I was just going to say, so th- that sounds fantastic. I- I'm curious, There are symbolic things that leaders can do that can have great significance. Did Dave change his own comp package at that time?
1: He took no bonus. took a zero bonus and he actually uh, said that he regrets not having come public more open because he said he knew when he was doing this, that this was something he felt he needed to do. Uh, But he didn't talk about it because he didn't yet have the approval of the board that they would let him do that. Uh, As soon as he went public with it, his own senior leadership team all took the same zero bonus uh, and many of their direct reports did as well. Now, you know, he's the first to say it's not like that saved the company company financially, but it was, he understood that people automatically say, well, how can you be furloughing people, you know, taking away their pay for one to five weeks and you're just going to be the same as you always are. And he, he's a huge believer in fairness, which is the heart of trust. And he said, it just wouldn't be fair.
0: Yes. Now I'm also apt to say, and you tell me whether this is fair or overly simplistic or I'm just curious what your reaction is, that contracts exist because people are not trustworthy. Uh,
1: So uh, contracts exist uh, and they're critical to a capitalist system, any system where you need to specify obligations. Right. And so the reason why we do that uh, is to protect ourselves and other people so that we know what's expected of us in a relationship. The problem with contracts is it can never be as specific as the events that occur. Right. So you can anticipate some things and put them in a contract. You will never be able to anticipate everything. And that's why in addition to contracts, you actually need trust because there's this whole arena of activity that no one predicts that's going to emerge over time and that's where you need to be working with each other saying okay well what do we owe to each other in this circumstance we didn't anticipate this but we think that actually this is a place where we need to come together and so it's contracts and
0: yes right and i think if you had met me uh, several years ago you would have met somebody who most people would say uh is a real pain in the ass about negotiating contracts mm. And is a quote unquote, tough negotiator and, and you negotiated lots of, every time I'd been fucked over, it was a new clause in a contract. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've actually professor done a radical one eighty on that, uh, over the last handful of years. First, I only do business with people who sort of, uh, I know, and if I, they, they, and if I don't know them directly, they're somebody, I, they come to me through somebody I know. So that's part of it. And the other part of it, my attitude now is if you're going to fuck me over, get on with it, mm. right? Like we're either going to trust each other or not. Yes, we have to have an agreement we, to your point. It, 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 it's important to memorialize some things, make sure we all understand and have a third party lawyers look. at it. So I'm not being stupid about that, but at the same time, to your point, you can't deal with every scenario. It's either going to work or it's not. Right. I'm planning on it working. I know I'm a trustworthy person. I know exactly how I'm going to behave in this relationship. And if you're going to be an asshole, well, you're going to be an asshole. And there's no amount of building this contract that's going to get me to stop you from being that way. What's your reaction to that?
1: I think that that's a very rational way to approach it. I think that understanding the need for contracts and their limitations is a really important perspective as a business person to have. I think the other thing is that if you're smart, you do go into business with people who prove their ability to be trusting to you and who you can trust. And you back out when you can't, right? So, you know, the the trust is what has consequences. The lack of trust, breach of trust, that's when you say, okay, this is someone I'm just going to write them out. I'm not going to do business with this person. So, but I think assuming that the other party will be trustworthy, particularly if you say you have some reason for understanding that is a better way to me to approach the world, right? Than the sort of, I'm going to have to wall everything off and figure that if I don't protect myself, no one's going to protect me. Uh, So I think you need to be careful who you do that with. But I do think that it's a better approach to have to the world because I think you'll do better in business if you approach it that way
0: yes it's been my experience, and I'm somebody who's been screwed over many, many times. but the flip side of that is this afternoon I have a call with two entrepreneurs that i'm uh, that I'm helping this afternoon, and we've agreed to our uh terms and conditions of, of our uh agreement. The lawyers are still doing their thing and i I said to the guys i said look we're I'm going to sign this contract, so let's just get started and right. we, you know it may take a couple of weeks to get the lawyers sorted out but Unless you want to wait, I'm ready to go. I don't need a lawyer. Uh, I don't need your signature on an agreement. We've agreed to it. I trust you. Hey-ho, let's go.
1: Yeah, I I actually, when I'm a managing uh, person, meaning when I'm I'm hiring people, I do that when I'm hiring them. I don't hold them out for sort of the the breathless call and all this stuff. It's like, I like you. I think this is going to work. We'll work this out. But I want to let you know you have the job. And so, you know, so let's keep talking, but I don't want you to sort of be in fear that I'm not going to go with this because what I've seen I like. And I think that people then are much more open to talking with you. Well, I'm still a little concerned about X. Or could we talk more about why? Uh, And I think it just opens it up rather than my HR people will get in touch with your people and we'll kind of make this happen. So I think there is this human connection that you can make that's based on just trying to be open with each other uh, that is part of this trusting relationship.
0: Yes. And and how do you connect trust and reputation?
1: So reputation is an outcome, right? Right. So it's based on people's judgment that you can be trusted. And, you know, most people take data into account – uh, and they'll look at your actions. And if you do things in a way that builds trust over time, you get a good reputation. So when James Burke, you know, was famously head of the at Johnson & Johnson during the Tylenol crisis, 1982, you know, he talked about the fact that the only reason why people trusted him when he came back out with repackaging and all this sort of stuff was because of all the things that people had done before at Johnson & Johnson. And so I think anyone who is starting a business now, you are building your tale of trust, right? You are building the narrative now about what it is that people will do. And you'll need to call on that at some point in the future when something happens. And so that's why you're always kind of working this issue. It's not reputation management, crisis, bump in the night. Let's figure out what to do. If you haven't been building it all the way up to that point, uh, it's very unlikely that you'll be tremendously successful after that.
0: Hmm, that makes sense to me. It also occurs to me because it's been my experience, but I wanted to check it out with you. In my case as an individual, in the case of a company or a brand, I th- I've seen it as well. When you build that bank of trust, you are trusted more by more people. Bye. And here's the other interesting thing. I have f- found this in my own career. People are l- much less likely to fuck with me. Yeah, because I have a reputation, and I have a reputation of being trustworthy, and so the experience I have is people don't want to cross you for that reason, and so it lowers the incidence of bad behavior.
1: Right, you're nodding your head. So I am currently a fan of K-drama, the Korean uh, romantic comedy TV serials. And I've watched probably 12 of them over the past number of months. And I'm currently watching the Netflix one that's called Vicenzo. uh, And it's about a guy who was the conciliary for the mafia. He's a Korean guy who was raised in Italy and then comes back to Korea. And you see the way that he describes the rules of engagement that the mafia believe, the principles that they have, and why it is that they don't do business with people they don't trust, and how it is that they can be counted on because they are somewhat reliable. Now, I'm not advising that we follow the mafia in all ways, but that notion that people actually look at you and understand what principles are guiding your behavior And that you know what those principles are. And so it's so fascinating to watch him describe to the people around him, well, here's what I'm doing and here's why I'm doing it, because we would never do it that way. You know, we're not going to harm noncombatants because this is going to be a war between people who are fighting each other. Uh, And so it's actually quite interesting to see the way that that kind of a trust circle happens and that different groups actually develop norms of trust that allow them to have expectations that they then can live up to uh, when they deal with each other.
0: It's interesting because I'm, I'm, I have a personal experience of how powerful this is today. Uh, m- most of our guests are either friends or, or relationships that I have, or they come the way you did, which is a PR person who reaches out and says, we have this wonderful person who's written this great book and maybe they will be a fit from time to time. I will reach out to somebody I don't know. I'll yeah. hear about somebody. I'll, I'll read something. And I'm always looking typically for somebody who is doing something very different, who I don't think is ha- their ideas are not being exposed enough, what have you. Anyway, so from time to time, probably nah, maybe once a month, I'll reach out to somebody hmm. and professor, I'm stunned. At the trust.
1: Hmm. Uh,
0: I just did this, and I don't know if he'd appreciate it, so I won't use his name, but it was <laughs> with a, uh, a professor who uh, y- you might know, just say it that way. And uh, this professor ha- had come out with some pretty startling things, revelations uh, based on research. And was starting to talk about it and had a book coming out, although the book wasn't out. And so I heard about this and I was like, why isn't this bigger news? Why isn't this front page? news? This is incredible. And yeah. I did a little bit of research on this professor. And so I just emailed him off the, the university's website and I explained to him who I was and that I would love to have him on. And in about five minutes, he said yes. And he emailed me the digital copy of his book that was not yet out. Right. And he has a mainstream big time publisher and he's a professor at a very well-known university. And he's <laughs> a very well-known professor at that university. And it struck me in that moment, what does it take for him to respond in the way that he did? So what creates you know, I would describe this that you tell me as instant trust. Why did mm. he trust me to say yes and send me his book that was not out that I could have put up on the Internet for free and screwed his pu- publication and the whole thing? I think that
1: uh, he trusted you for the following reasons. I-, I think that however you made the approach and did he know in advance that you were talking with him
0: or was this like out it was of the a blue? complete cold email? OK, and I, I don't know whether he knew me or not. My assumption is he didn't.
1: Okay, so, so you, when you talked to him and/ or if he was smart and just Googled you uh, before the conversation, uh, found out that you were competent. that you were good at what you do, uh, and that there might be a way that this could benefit him. Uh, And then he probably understood that by the way that you talked to him, that your motivation was to see his work get more widely disseminated, that what you were going to do with that was to use your podcast as a means to help that happen, and that at the end of that, the impact would be that his book would get support in a way that it hadn't had before. So I've just outlined to me the four ways that people trust.
0: You know and what makes somebody make that, this is a high stakes situation with a highly intelligent individual, giant, you know, big new book that, I, you know, I know what it's like to be an author. You, of course, know what it's like to be an author. You spend years, you pour your life, your heart, your soul, your mind your friends, your collaborators, your money, your you know, no one writes a book like your book uh, unless they care deeply. Right. And so right. what makes somebody have instant trust or not?
1: I think that it is a genuine response to someone's indication of interest. And so it's, let me give an analogy here. So there are academics who will talk to a group of four people at another university to talk with them about their research. And that's not because four is a big number. It's because those people are interested and really care about what it is that the person is studying and want to engage with them. Uh, And I think that that motivation uh, to build a relationship, to understand what comes out of that, I, I think that that's a very profound need that we have. And the more that you're a creative person, trying to put something out in the world that matters to you, the more open you are to, oh my God, you know, here's someone who actually thinks this is pretty good. Uh, And it's not like you're an idiot for thinking that. It's like you care that someone else cares because you yourself care so much.
0: Interesting. Now, I've also read that we are at one of the lowest points in recorded history of trust in government. Have you heard or read the same kinds of things?
1: the people that I've looked to for that kind of information are the people at Edelman with their trust barometer. And so this is Edelman is a PR firm that has been studying trust and really centering its entire practice around trust for more than 20 years. Uh, And they do a global uh, trust barometer every year across a number of both developed and less developed countries. Uh, And they look at people's trust in four institutions, Government, business, NGOs, uh, and the media. And so, you know, the 2020, 2021 uh, trust barometer does show a, a, quite a remarkable drop uh, in trust in government. But I think if you looked at that over time, it will wax and wane. Mm. So uh, I, I think that the pandemic is obviously the thing that people are using right now. Uh, And this is, you know, what scientists would call a natural experiment, where around the world we have governments who are being judged by the same yardstick, which is how many people are dying on your watch and how are you protecting your population, Uh, And so it's very rare that we have this kind of a moment where everyone has sort of got the same definition of what trustworthy behavior looks like. Uh, And because people are rightly so concerned about the impact of the pandemic, that's why trust in government is so low, because it's the government that we look to to help keep us safe.
0: Yes. The other one that came up recently, and I, I don't want to get overly political with you, but I'd be just curious as to your thoughts After the most recent election here in the United States, you know, there's a tremendous amount of concern, primarily amongst Republicans, but even beyond in, uh, for lack of a better term, voting or election integrity. And, you know, we see the count being the recount in Georgia three times and other states where where the recounts went on and on and so forth. And, um, um, uh, you know, the the Republicans challenging the outcome and, and so forth. And. This created a big concern amongst, uh, best I can tell, a meaningful percentage of Americans around, can we trust our elections? So, look, I'm never going to be president of the United States, but it did occur to me, were I in Biden's shoes, not like he didn't have enough to do, it might have been wise to set up a, a committee of Democrats, Republicans and independents to go look at this issue. And spend six or nine months dealing with it. Yeah. Come back with a set of recommendations. Do it in a radically transparent way, because you'll tell me. But my suspicion is transparency has a lot to do with trust. Because if, yeah. if we can see what you're up to, we trust what you're up to. And yet, the Biden administration seems to have decided to not do anything sort of big and and uh, broad stroked uh, around uh, election integrity. And so, when an issue of trust comes up, and it's that big. How should leaders think about dealing with that level of trust?
1: I think that my assessment of how it is that the calculus that the Biden administration is making is to rank order the things that they can uh, address and the importance of them in different ways. Uh, and so my my sense is, is that this is an issue that is very much on their minds. But in the early warfare that came out after the election, in my view, it would have been a mistake for them to land there with both feet, uh, because I think the Republicans quite rightly would say, why should we trust you? You just stole this election uh, from our guy. Uh, and so I think this is one where he sat it out and said, that, let's turn this over to Congress and see how far they can get with this issue. Now, obviously, all the states are now instituting a lot of them really awful and repressive uh, anti-voting legislation. Uh, And so this is a battle that's going to continue. And I would not be surprised if later on in his presidency, he didn't do exactly what you said. So I think it had more to do with the question of timing and an issue of sort of how did he see the needs of the people in the country and where did he rank order that particular issue?
0: Yeah, I, I can certainly see that. And it seems to me it would be, to put it the most kind way, a missed opportunity not to do this before uh, the next federal election for president, if not the next uh, Senate uh, go go around. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And we're now going to have a, a recall election here in California.
1: All right.
0: And so it will be interesting to see how all yeah. of the heat around integrity of elections plays out as it relates to what will now be a new run for governor here in California.
1: Right. I I think that the other comment I would make is, and I'm thinking this through on my feet here, but I think it's important that we know what to call this issue. So I do not think we have a problem with integrity of elections. I think we have a problem with people's belief in the integrity of elections. And that's a very different thing. Uh, Because if I had a problem with integrity of elections, I would go down one path to fix things. If I have a problem of perception, uh, then it's a question of what can I do to help persuade people that their vote matters? And so I would go after a different goal if I were actually addressing it. So because it it makes me concerned if we say that the issue is integrity in elections, because I don't actually think that that's what's at stake here. I think the Republicans didn't like losing the election and that it was convenient for them to say that it was stolen. Uh, But I think that the more that we use that language, the more we can perpetuate the myth that there is an integrity in elections problem in the United States. And I just don't think it's there.
0: Interesting. Uh, one of the things we say in category design and in, in creating new categories is you got to frame it, name it, and claim it. And the framing of the discussion is everything, right? And so to your point, uh, what's the framing of this discussion? There are many Americans who would disagree with what you just said. They would say it's not about communicating right. the integrity, that there is a quote-unquote real integrity problem which gets me to the point I was on earlier. So maybe connect for me, transparency to trust.
1: So I I think that here, uh, so as you said, it is definitely true that uh, among the elements of trust uh, is this question of fair means. And transparency is very much a part of that. Uh, So there is a type, there are all different types of fairness. One type of fairness that's one of the most powerful is information fairness. And that's fairness based on how candid I am about the things that I know, that I think you need to know, uh, and whether it is that you can trust me with the data that I'm presenting. Uh, And so that's why transparency matters so much is because it's not fair to withhold information that people need or that people are relying on. And people, if they feel that you are withholding information from them that they need, whether a shot, a vaccination is safe, you know, that's going to be a huge issue uh, for them with respect to information fairness and, and whether or not they trust you based on the means that you're using, because they're afraid that you're lying to them or that you're not disclosing all that you need to.
0: Yes. In this regard, the when Johnson & Johnson with the CDC uh, removed their vaccine, the fascinating thing about it to me was, at least based on the numbers that I could see, the negative impact and and some deaths that occurred were infinitesimal compared to the number of people who got the shot, or even in this case, the number of women that got the shot or the number of women in this age group that got the shot. And look, of course uh, I'm no doctor and I'm no regulator. It it seemed like such a small number. I didn't know whether it was worthy of even mentioning because, Hmm. uh, you know, there isn't necessarily causation, but I couldn't help but think that even though it hurt in the short term w- with people particularly who are, who are fearful of the vaccine, there's no question it's done that. Yeah. In the mid to long term, J&J and the government did the right thing right? because they were being radically transparent. They didn't know whether their drug was making this happen or not. But they were leaving no stone unturned. They were taking no chance and they were not going to bullshit the public. And if that meant in the short term that the number of people getting vaccinated was going to go down, then so be it. They made a choice to be radically transparent. That's how it seemed to me. How did it seem to you?
1: I agree with that assessment. Uh, I think that what they did is they said that we need the time to figure out how many people would be impacted by this they did see enough to let them think that this affects women. It affects women in a certain age group. And it has a very particular effect, which is that if treated wrongly, the side effects uh, from this vaccination uh, can actually be fatal. So they had enough of a story that they needed to follow through. But they also, I think, were smart in not following that through forever. Because once they could conclude, okay, that does seem to be, so we're going to come out with a warning. It's going to be on for everyone who takes it, including doctors and patients and all of that. So everyone knows that if you're a woman and in this range of ages, you probably need to consider whether or not this is the right vaccination for you to get. So I think that that's about as fair as it gets, uh, yeah. which is, yeah. So, and, and, but the transparency is a path to get there. Uh, I, and so I, I think this was really, Uh, an effort to try to build trust, even if in the short term, you were going to undermine a certain amount of trust to get there.
0: Yeah, that's how it felt to me. But um, you're the expert, which is why I wanted to ask. Now, I also, uh, if I could, before you go, so I've lived in Silicon Valley for over 25 years. And in the time that I've been here, Professor, we've gone, the tech industry has gone from being, and and when I say tech, I mean specifically startup tech world, which is where I spent the bulk of my professional Mm. life, uh, has gone from being a cottage industry uh, to being a giant major industry. And when I first moved here uh, as a young man, it felt like I got to know everybody in Silicon Valley relatively Mm. quickly. And Mm. I was half a degree of separation at most. And for our discussion on trust and reputation, Everybody knew everybody, mm. and so if you were an asshole, it got around pretty quickly and so what the Silicon Valley that I knew and grew up with as a young man was one where we could do business on a handshake because if you broke mm. your commitment or your word, it got out pretty quickly. We've grown up now, we 're much bigger, and not only is Silicon Valley not that way, in some ways it 's tilted the opposite right. and even worse. A, you know, cause that's all sort of inside baseball, but to the world now, you know, Facebook's one of the most hated companies in the world. And I believe our industry has done way more good than bad, but I have to sit here today and admit that our industry is doing some, some bad, some real bad around privacy. Of course, you, you hear what's happening to young people around body dysmorphia with Instagram and filters and TikTok videos and all these things. And it's like, this wonderful technology that was supposed to bring us all together and, and and be amazing for humanity is actually fast turning into a cigarette. And so whether it's sort of the inside Silicon Valley uh, growing up thing where we've lost that, that sort of colloquial trust, so to speak. And to your point earlier, when there's mistrust inside, then there's mistrust outside. Now, now we've become an industry that's done bad things. And so, if I was somebody who wanted to, on one hand, you know, I'm not trying to be Pollyannish about the good old days. Um, I want us to move forward. We're an industry that moves forward. But at the same time, we've broken our trust amongst each other. Silicon Valley is not a place you can do business on a handshake anymore. And our industry has become untrusted by uh, millions. So how, how do we fix a Silicon Valley, professor? <laughs>
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked me small questions, Christopher. You know, I really appreciate that. So uh, one uh, reaction that I have is why don't people go after Salesforce? So I've been thinking a lot about Mark Benioff and the company that he runs uh, as I've been trying to rack my brains and say, okay, where can we find a tech giant that actually doesn't fit the mold of all these other companies? And it's quite striking that, you know, for years, they had this uh, graphic on the first page of the Wall Street Journal that showed that they're the number one CRM uh, in the world. And I'm thinking that that's like an invitation for an antitrust suit. But no one has gone after them. Right, and, and so I think that it's not a question of is there something in tech that can't be managed. It's really a question of who's doing the managing, how they think about it, and what it is that they want to grow themselves into. Uh, you know, and so we, you know, we write in the book about Pinterest uh, as another company that actually has done tremendous work around anti vaxxing and all that sort of stuff, and has guidelines for what it allows. Uh, on its site and they are reviewed by people and the guidelines change all the time to reflect what's going on and the misinformation. So it's not that these things can't be done. It's really a question of what are the goals of the companies and how do they want to operate? So I don't know, what's your reaction to that? Because to me, Salesforce sits as this kind of lonely giant that no one's going after. And I'm still trying because I'm not from the Valley to understand why is that?
0: Well, I think, you know, you indicate it with your comments. Mark Benioff, he's hard to criticize from the point of view of being a founder CEO who's committed to the world around him. You know, he's publicly said that he he thinks the uh, homeless people in San Francisco are one of the constituents that matter to his company because they're part of the environment that he operates in. And so they want to do something about it. And so from the very beginning of the company, they've given money, they they've encouraged their employees to be philanthropic. They've incurred. they've given their employees time to go do, you know, so, yeah. so it's hard to sort of come out and say, Oh, Mark Benioff's an asshole. You know, maybe if you're against LBGTQ rights, you, you might say that, but you know, right. he's, so he's promoted all sorts of things that, um, Interestingly enough, and you sort of said this earlier, aren't necessarily directly correlated with his own best interest. Why does it matter to him to argue about LGBTQ rights? Why does he care about the homeless problem, et etc.? Cetera, et cetera? Um, and so, uh, why has he been, uh, you know, it's a very risky thing for a male CEO to be so public about supporting women because that just invites to your point, criticism of saying, well, I didn't do this for the women and you didn't give them this thing that you were, or whatever it is, right. It's supposed to invite all of that and it hasn't. And I think it's because people, people get a sense that he's trying to do the right thing and he might not get it right all the time, but he's trying. And I think we're at a point now, Professor, and I'd love to, I say this to kind of bounce it off you, where people matter as much, if not more, than brands.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Because we want to know who's behind this stuff. We want to know who's telling me this. Can I trust this person? And I think Benioff has established a 25-year career as the founder of uh, Salesforce of being a trustful guy. His employees say it's a good place to work. I know, uh, I, I don't know Mark well, but I know him. Uh, and I certainly know a lot of people who work directly for him for uh, quite some time. And to a person, they'll tell you, he's the toughest boss they ever had. He's an absolute driven, he'll he'll make you nuts. And he's fair and he's big hearted and he's wicked smart and he expects results. And they admire him for those things.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that, uh, so there is, uh, uh, particularly I think in, tech, uh, a way that we see the leader and the brand is almost being synonymous. So Steve Jobs, Apple, uh, you know Zuckerberg, Facebook. Uh, and so I, I think it's in part because it was hard to get our arms around what is this thing? <laughs> and it was easier to understand it through the lens of who is this thing and who's doing the thinking. And in particular, when you're innovating, I think that people rightly look to who's the innovator here. What is that? Who is that person? What do they care about? What are they trying to accomplish? So so I think that tech actually has opportunities there that other brands don't to have a sort of reclamation, to at least have the leaders play a more forceful role than is common, uh, because I think that they actually are looked to in a way that leaders in other companies may not have the same visibility. Uh, and so I think that that's both a trial but an opportunity for the tech leaders to really understand the fact that they are these brands, uh, and that that's part of what people are trusting in to the degree that they trust at all.
0: Yes. Now, as a professor, I also must ask you, how do we raise generation of uh, executives and business leaders who believe deeply in trust? deeply in ethics, deeply in transparency.
1: We started at Harvard Business School a course called Leadership and Corporate Accountability in 2004. And when we first started teaching this course, which has this premise that uh, a good business is simultaneously, economically, legally, and ethically sound. And when we started in 2004, that was a contentious uh, premise to base a course on. In the first place, no one had tried to combine law and ethics uh, and strategy around business and how it is that business operates. So it was a new discipline of sorts. But the students kind of weren't buying it, right? It was like, I don't think that's necessary to be a commercially successful business. That premise has changed dramatically uh, since 2004. Uh, And now this is not a contentious uh, idea. That you need to actually have businesses that have this multiple stakeholder lens on the world. The course is organized by what are your responsibilities to your customers, to your employees, uh, to society, uh, and to, I'm forgetting one, um, customer investors. Right, And so each module of the course says, what do you owe to this particular group of stakeholders? Uh, And so it's a map for the kind of thinking that I'm trying to show in the book, which is if you take the stakeholder view, uh, that you're actually going to run a better business. So there's a reason why sustainable investing is now one out of every $4 of new money coming in uh, to the capital markets. Right. Uh, There's a reason why ESG reporting is now required of companies if they intend to make any kind of an impression uh, on the fact that they understand who they are in the world and the effects that they have. Uh, And there's a reason why the conference board came out in 2019 and said we believe in stakeholder capitalism. So that that's a long trend that has taken decades uh, to develop, way too long in my view. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that at least for right now, there's a kind of a center in the business of sort of under the business of business, of understanding that that way of looking at the world as a business person actually is better than taking a pure shareholder perspective. You'll do better business and you'll be more sustainable over time. And that didn't used to be the premise that people had.
0: And it's easier to sleep at night.
1: No kidding. Right. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh,
0: now, Professor, clearly I could talk to you forever, but I do want to be respectful of your time. Are there any? Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up?
1: No, this has been uh, so much more fun than I thought it would be. (laughs) So (laughs) I I just... Why is that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I, I appreciate the chance to kind of go wide. Uh, and to think about this from lots of different perspectives, uh, because, uh, you know, I worked for 20 years in business. I regard myself still as a working executive. And so I follow all of this stuff with great interest. And so for me, this has been so much fun because it hasn't just been, well, tell me what's in your book, you know, and all of that. But it's a chance to really apply the things that we're thinking about to all of these different dimensions. So I have truly enjoyed it. And you're fun to talk to anyway.
0: Well, thank you, Sandra. That's very, very kind of you, and um, uh, I really appreciate your work. I think it's probably more important now than than ever to be having these conversations. Conscious capital, double bottom line, triple bottom line, the the existential discussion around business. I, I think in a post or hopefully soon post COVID world, but as we move through this thing, you know, so many of us are asking, well. Why do I do what I do? Why do I spend time with who I spend time with? Why do I live where I live? Is this work meaningful to me? Do I have to drive to an office or don't I? What's the future of education? Do I actually have to go to, you know, do I have to go to Harvard to go to Harvard? You know, there's so many existential questions that we're all facing. And and one of them has to be, uh, what's the role of a business beyond just earnings per share? And so this work that you're doing, I think, is, is, is more important now than ever before. Well,
1: thanks so much. I agree. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I appreciate you saying that. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Professor. And come back anytime.
1: OK, you bet. OK, thank you.
0: Thank you. Well, there she is, the legendary uh, Harvard Business School professor, Sandra Sucher. Her new book is called The Power of Trust, How Companies Earn It, Lose It, and regain it, pick it up wherever you get uh, legendary books today. The other thing I'd like to remind you of is because we're a Real Dialogue Podcast, you may notice that in that conversation that Professor Sucher and I just had, you did not hear an ad in the middle of that conversation. Because I don't know about you, but uh, I can't stand it when that happens. Now here is the ad that I want you to hear now, however. (laughs) In times like these, being flexible and adaptable is critical to both survive and thrive. And Oracle NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And the flexibility is built in so that you can scale up, spin out, adopt new business models, expand into new geographies, and change and move your business how you want to, when you want to. There's a reason that 63% of the recent tech IPOs run NetSuite. Now you don't have to put up with any more spreadsheet hairballs or QuickBooks constraints. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite, the complete business system in the cloud. Visit netsuite.com/different today. That's netsuite.com/different. And one thing has become crystal clear, maybe more than ever before, that anything can and does happen, sometimes in the blink of an eye. And so now, more than ever, we need to be ready for everything. Respond to every threat to seize every opportunity and to be ready for everything. You have to bring data to everything because today more than ever data is the business. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, helping you bring data to every question, every decision and every action so that you can be ready for security and ransom attacks, so that you can be ready to respond to changing customer needs and demands, ready to change your business model, ready to work from anywhere, and be ready to respond to every question, every decision, and every action with data. Visit splunk.com today slash D to E, because today, more than ever, the data is the business and legendary businesses bring data to everything. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Professor Sandra Sucher of the Harvard Business School. Thank you so much, Professor. Her new book is out. I loved it. Check it out. The Power of Trust, How Companies Earn It, Lose It and Regain It. My friends at live.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan and live your best life. Check them out. Speaking of nonprofits that I love, the Drop-In Coalition is serving underserved kids here in the Santa Cruz area teaching them the joy of science, technology, art, engineering, and math, coupled with the joy of learning to surf and the beauty of Mother Nature in the ocean. Visit dropincoalition.org today, and uh, and please join us. My friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. They've been physically distancing before that was a thing, so if you need an assistant who's legendary and will never get anywhere near you, visit bottleneck.online today. My friends at autranet Are The uh, number one company in Silicon Valley providing B2B tech websites. Visit A-T-R-E dot N-E-T today. That's A-T-R-E dot net. And if you are a podcaster or you're getting into podcasting, here's the reality. If you sound like shit, you sound like shit. And um, the reason we don't sound like shit is we have the greatest producer of all time, the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo, and we use Squadcast.fm as our platform. So if you want to do legendary podcasts with studio quality sound over the internet, check out Squadcast.fm today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is sole property of the Lockhead Podcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed, and we would love it if you shared this podcast with everybody that you know, respect, and love. Uh as I mentioned we are produced and edited by the goat Jason De His podcast is one of my top favorites. It's called Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution and they build lockhead.com. Don't forget to go to lockhead.com and check out Category Pirates. It's like HBR only for pirates. Show notes by GM Simon. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Adam West is the real Batman, and Linda Carter is the real Wonder Woman. I don't care what anyone says. Charles Bukowski was right. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin. This odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay healthy, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.